We've been in this incredible series in the book of 1 John, this short five-chapter epistle. We've been calling the series Because He Loves Us. And what we're discovering is, is 1 John is unique. Unlike any other book in the New Testament, 1 John gives us a robust theology of love. The theme of love, it just overflows from every verse, from every chapter of this short letter that the disciple that Jesus loved penned to the church. However, to be honest, anyone who sits down with 1 John and actually reads it from start to finish expecting a soft, warm cookie theology may be surprised by the intensity and the depth of this little letter. In fact, if you've read ahead in 1 John, you know that John will address a whole slew of topics ranging from the Antichrist to idolatry to how to identify demonic spirits and deal with false teachers when they infiltrate the church. All great, like, party like topics, you know? Let's talk about the Antichrist. What are your thoughts about the Antichrist? That's probably a very dangerous question to ask these days. So why did John, in this letter of love, address all of these topics that, to be honest, don't get a lot of airtime, even in church circles these days? You see, John, he's not only a writer, he's not only a, an apostle, he's a pastor. He cares deeply about the people that he's writing this letter to. So his letter of love, it includes several warning passages along with encouragements to the church as well. And we'll see, we'll actually unpack one of these warning passages together in chapter 2. Now here in the Pacific Northwest, we have an, a cultural inclination to see warnings as restrictive, oppressive to our freedom, and quite frankly, unloving. Case in point, how many of you have gone to Pacific City and ever hiked up that giant sand dune at Cape Kawanda? By a show of hands, how many of you guys have ever done that before? Love that. It's one of my favorite places when the faucet turns off and all of Oregon goes to the coast. Our family has gone out there. We love Cape Kawanda. And for those of you that have made the trek up the giant sand dune, when you get to the top, you probably know that you run into a, searing, a series of very overt warning signs. I think I have some pictures of, of the signs on this sand dune. It could, be not, it could not be more explicit. Warning, warning, warning. If you cross this fence, you may die. That's, that's what you get when you get to, to the top of the sand dune is you get signs like this. I think I have another one there. Without fail, each time that I hike up there, I see half a dozen folks who ignore the signs to capture epic selfies of themselves to share on Instagram. But unbeknownst to fence-hopping tourists and teenagers, the sandstone bluff that overlooks the ocean is actually extremely dangerous. In fact, in 2016 alone, in the span of eight months, seven people lost their lives, slipped and fell into the ocean. Now, can you imagine 
what would happen if the city council in Pacific City decided to take down the warning signs altogether? This is a ridiculous thought, but what if they just decided, you know what, we're not going to inhibit people's freedom whatsoever. So instead of the fence, let's take down the fence and let's install a Frisbee golf course <laughs> up on the sandstone bluff. Would that be loving? No, absolutely not. And granted, it might be fun and make for some killer Instagrammable moments, but it would likely kill you if you went up there and actually didn't respect the fact that this is dangerous territory. So sometimes what you need to know, the most loving thing someone can do on our behalf is, is warn us of dangerous cliffs and bluffs that we're blind to in the world. And that's what we're going to encounter today as we continue our study in 1 John we're going to see a loving warning from the disciple that Jesus loved that's going to help us flourish, get our bearings, and find our way in this beautiful fallen world that we live in. How does that sound? Great. Three of you are into it. It's a perfect start. <laughs> I love it. It's like, yay, warning passage. It's great. There's some good stuff, too. First, John, we're going to jump in at uh, verse 12 in chapter 2. So if you have your Bible or your phone open, join me as I read God's Word this morning. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. This morning, what we're going to do, there's so much that we could unpack in this passage, but perhaps you noticed it in verse 15 we get actually the first direct command and imperative in that letter. And it goes like this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's so essential that we think clearly about this first direct command in the letter 
to not love the world or the things of the world, that what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this command, this warning together, and we're going to see three things, okay, in our time together if you're taking notes. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to seek to understand what this warning means, why it matters, and where it leads us. What it means when John writes, do not love the world, the things of the world, why this warning matters, and ultimately where this warning leads us. First things first, what in the world does this warning mean? Do not love the world or the things in the world. This can be super confusing if you think about it because the same John that wrote this letter, if you're familiar with his writings, he also wrote what is hands down the most like famous verse in all of the Bible, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only unique son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So which is it? Are we supposed to love the world or not love the world? These two ideas seem conflicted, don't they? I mean, God loves the world. So why in the world does John warn us to not love the world or the things of the world in this letter? What you need to understand is that the world, the word world that John uses here in this warning can actually mean a number of things. It can mean the material world or humanity, people. The Greek world, word cosmos, it can mean the material cosmos and, and space that we occupy, or it can mean culture and people. But this word cosmos can also represent a way of thinking and living that's in direct rebellion to God's will and God's word. And when John warns us and says, do not love the world, he's telling us not to adopt a way of thinking that's actually in rebellion to God's loving character and commands. In fact, notice the way that Jesus uses the word world in the upper room discourse that John recorded in John 17. So if you turn to the left, the last of our four Gospels in chapter 17, we read this prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples, including John, who was leaning against Jesus over the last dinner that they shared together. And in verse 14, listen to how Christ talks about our relationship with the world and his relationship with the world. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. 
they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So, did you notice in the passage how you have that direct contrast between God's word and God's will and the world? And the world, it it actually is in rebellion against God's word. It it hates, it's anti-gospel, it hates God's word, It, it rejects Christ, and so when John tells us, do not love the world, he does not mean that we should not love people or engage culture. Jesus sent his disciples into the world. He says, Father, I don't pray that that they'd be out of the world, but sent into the world the way you sent me to love people, to engage culture. Instead, what John is warning us when he says, don't fall in love with the world, is he's warning us about the danger of loving and adopting our our world's way of thinking and living over God's. Which begs the question, How can we live as disciples who are in the world, but not of the world? Or perhaps more poignantly, how can we live as disciples who are in the world, but not in love with the world? You see, having come to faith in my teenage years, I actually belonged to a holiness church where teenagers go, they're flocking to holiness churches. I, I, was, I, was, I came to Christ through Young Life, and actually I got connected with a, a church that loved preaching passages like this that would just rail on everything wrong with the world. You have a lot of material. And so whenever I'd read a verse or a passage like this that says, do not love the world or the things of the world, or I'd hear a pastor like myself get up here and say, Christians, you're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. I take it to mean that Christians should avoid any and all contact with with worldly things, which tends to lead to a lot of wacky legalisms and rules. Uh, This kind of, you know, avoid all things that are worldly can be interpreted that unless you listen to a certain kind of music, dress a certain way, watch movies with a certain rating, and avoid alcohol and sex, you would be a worldly Christian. And there's nothing worse than being worldly. And so in my attempt to not be a worldly Christian, but to be a godly Christian, I destroyed all of my secular CDs, of which I am a musician and I had lots of good music. And I I destroyed them all because I I felt like, you know, unless this rock is actually dedicated to Jesus, it's worldly and it has to be shunned. And so I gave up all of my secular CDs only to repurchase them. (laughs) Like years, 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 years down the road. 
And you see, what, what I did is, is I would, I'm supposed to just not be a worldly Christian. And, and I just thought, man, I have to purge my heart of, of anything that is worldly. And I don't want to be contaminated by the world. And it was a sincere desire. The only problem is the harder I tried to purge my heart of worldly things, the more miserable and unloving and quite frankly, just strange I became. And some of you, I know you could feel me on this. You've, you've probably sincerely brought your heart before the Lord and, and you say, I don't want to love the world or the things of the world. But the problem is we do. We, we love the world a lot. Can we just be honest with our own hearts for a moment? It, our problem is not that we just occupy space in the world. It's that we love the world and the things of the world. And in the end, the only thing that can change the way we relate to the world is the gospel. Because only the gospel can change what our hearts desire and love. External rules and commands can't do that. Only the gospel can change what our hearts love. So, to help us be conformed into Christ followers who are in the world, but no longer in love with the world, what John does is so beautiful. He takes the x-ray of God's word, and he turns it on our hearts. Look at what John does. If you flip back to 1 John in verse 16, after commanding us, don't love the world or the things of the world, he immediately takes the conversation inside and addresses our hearts. And he says this, he says, for all that is in the world, <clears throat> the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. What's interesting about the word desire that John uses in this passage, which is sometimes translated lust in the NIV or cravings, in the King James and other translations, it's a very important biblical world, biblical word. It's the word epithumia. It's a combination of two Greek words, actually, that are put together. The word epi means over. And the word thumia means desire. And so taken together, the word actually should read over-desire. Not just desire, but an over-desire or an inordinate desire on overdrive. You see, an over-desire is when we take a good thing that God has created and it becomes so important to us, so central to our lives that we feel like we couldn't be happy without it. It takes on such meaning in our life that we would do anything to get it, to get more of it. And when we over-desire any worldly thing, that thing becomes an idol in our lives. In fact, if you want a really simple definition 
of what an idol is. It's anything in the world that we love and desire more than God. Anything. More often than not, we tend to associate bad things when we read verses like verse 16, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of possessions. But the truth is, is that the idols in our lives are more often than not good things that we simply over-desire. For example, let's take sex and money. Sex is a beautiful, powerful gift that God has given us to enjoy. And contrary to the way that many Christians speak about this topic, it's not worldly, it's not bad, and it's not corrupt. It's a good thing that God has created within his limitations for us to enjoy and enjoy a lot. In fact, our bodies are comprised with 20 square feet of skin, and they've been hardwired with over 100 billion neurons in a complex system of nerve endings designed to transmit pleasure and release powerful chemicals like dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin during sexual intercourse, and your body that was designed by God for this pleasure, it was all his idea. But when you say, I have to satisfy these desires, and I'll do anything regardless of what the Bible says to fulfill this desire, that's when our over-desire for sex, which is a good thing, turns into an idol that can enslave us and destroy us. Or take money. While there's nothing wrong or worldly about making money, the Bible warns us time and time again about the dangers of over-desiring wealth. In fact, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 to the left, a few pages, and look at the way that that Paul warns Timothy about the dangers of over-loving and over-desiring wealth in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. He says in verse 9, but those who desire, there's that word desire again, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, when John writes to the church and he warns them about the danger of taking pride in possessions, in verse 16, he's warning them that if we actually take things that we own 
And we begin to get our sense of value and worth from material things and wealth, it can plunge us headlong into a path that eventually leads to our own ruin and destruction. So John warns the church. And he tells them, be careful, children. Do not love the world or the things of the world, or they may become idols that enslave and destroy you. You know, one of the fascinating things, it's just honestly evaded me um, about John's letter for many years until I just spent some time reading commentaries and studying this week, is the way that John ends his letter. He ends it super, super abruptly. And for many years, I had no idea why he left off with a command that seemed to have no context at all. He says, almost seemed to say this thing on the fly, and it's just a strange way to end the letter. In fact, turn to 1 John chapter 5 and look at the way that John ends his letter in verse 21 of chapter 5. After talking about Jesus and, and his coming and how Jesus is the Christ and he's the true God and eternal life, in verse 21, he just ends the letter and says, little children, keep yourself from idols. John out. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's just, a, it's a strange way to end the letter. And, and for years, I didn't understand what John was doing. One, writing on papyrus, it may be something where he just went, you know what, I have to get one last warning. This is so important. You just need to hear, and he couldn't go back and edit I don't believe that. I believe inspired by the Spirit, you actually get a window into John's heart, and he's making one last appeal to the church. And he says, I, I just need to summarize every warning that I've made. And let me put it this way, little children, dear children, be careful about loving the world and over-desiring good things. And they may turn into God things and idols that destroy your lives. So little children, keep yourselves from loving idols. Be careful. So why, why does John warn us? If now that we've understood on a deeper level what John means and what he doesn't mean when he tells us, do not love the world or the things of the world, why this warning? To not love the world. Why does he tell us be careful and keep your life free from idols in this letter. Well, I believe, John, why this matters to us is, is revealed in two very searching and important reasons that John gives us this warning about loving our world. First and foremost, John wants us to know that a love for the world and a love for God are actually mutually exclusive. They're mutually exclusive. You can't have both. You must make a decision which one is going to be the epicenter of your life that you live and love out of. Love for the world 
or a love for God. In fact, look at the way that put, John puts these two loves right beside one another in John chapter 2, verse 17. Or, oh, I'm sorry, in verse 16, he says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In verse 15, I'm sorry. And, and, and so he says, if you love the world, here's a test. The love of the Father is not in you. When John says this in verse 15, if anyone loves the world... The word that he uses is actually the Greek word agape. It it doesn't just symbolize an affection or an attachment. This is the highest love that we can have. And so John says, if we agapeo the world, if we love the world, we cannot agape God. The agape of God cannot be in our hearts if we agapeo the world. Because a love for the world and a love for God, only one can be the primary love of our lives. John is not the only one that tells us that a love for the world or the things of the world is incompatible with the love of God. In fact, remember the passage in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says the same exact thing about loving God and loving money. In Matthew 6.24, look at how Jesus puts love for God and love for the world side by side. He says, no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know what, friends? At any given moment in life, here's what you need to know. There are two very powerful voices that are constantly making their appeal to our hearts. Both of them promise to fulfill and satisfy us, but one is a lie and the other is truth. So each day we must decide which voice you're going to listen to. The fallen world that's passing away along with all of its desires and empty promises or the voice of a father who loves us enough to warn us and who will never leave us or forsake us. We have to choose which voice we'll listen to each and every day. Amen. You know, growing up, my mom was, was a lit major, and so I was forced to read a lot, um, including, you know, Greek mythology, um, which makes you popular as a kid. Um, <laughs> And by far, you know, I mean, actually, the Greek stories are actually awesome. I was forced to read a lot of things, but Greek myths are awesome. And by far, I mean, hands down, um, I I love the ocean. I'm a fisherman. My favorite Greek myth of all times uh, involved two Greek myths, the, the myth of Ulysses and the myth of Orpheus. Now, 
the one that's more widely known, unless you're a lit geek, is, is the tale of Ulysses, the sea captain who, who actually passed by the, the island of the sirens, the sirens. Of course, those familiar with this story know that the sirens were these beautiful mermaids that would actually sing this enchanting song that was so powerful, so alluring, that if, if captains of, of ships and, and their crew heard it, they would be intoxicated and captivated by the song. It would overtake them and they would steer their ships onto this island, shipwrecking everything. Everyone would die and they would loot and pillage the ships. Great literature, like right there. It's awesome. But there's a lesser known story of another ship that actually confronted the sirens at the sea. And it is the tale of Orpheus. It's my favorite Greek myth. Indulge me for a moment as I read a portion of this great epic tale. Captain Orpheus, the first mate declared, the sweet song of the sirens lies just ahead. With that announcement, the crew cheered and great Orpheus smiled. All around the ship, the crewmen's voices rang with excitement. The part of the voyage they longed for was close at hand. In fact, some on the ship had come to hear the music. Without, with a knowing smile, the dauntless Captain Orpheus received a beautifully ordained case from his cabin boy. The acclaimed Orpheus carefully removed the priceless instrument as the crewman stood by with bated breath. Then with princely grace, he lifted the instrument above his head and with a gesture of victory, while the crew around him whistled with enthusiasm, shouting, play it, captain, cheered the helmsman. All eyes were riveted to their hero. Captain Orpheus took his stance and began to masterfully play the most perfect music men's ears have ever heard. Each crewman became lost in the reverie of the song. All too soon, the siren coastline was out of sight, and the master musician concluded the song that he himself had composed. Not a single man on board the ship was tempted by the siren's melody. In fact, no one even noticed it. Though the siren's music was alluring and sweet, the superb Orpheus played by his crew a sweeter song. You know, we live in a world where the siren songs are at full volume at all time. But there's a sweeter song. It can overpower all the empty, alluring songs of our world. And it's the song of the gospel, a song that tells us that we are loved as dear children by a perfect Father who abides in light, whose word to us will never fail, and whose love will be with us for all eternity. And so you, friends, have to decide each day, which song are you going to be making friends with and listening to for eternity? Because only one song will last forever. 
And it's not the songs that this world sings. It's the loving song of the Father. That's the only voice that you will hear 10,000 years from now as we're bright shining as the sun is that song. Amen? Amen. Which brings us, friends, to the second reason that John warns us and why it matters. In the end, whatever we love most in this life, either the fallen world or the Father will ultimately determine the course of our lives. I believe that's what John is trying to drive home in this warning is, is that we have to be honest with what we most deeply love because we become what we love. The trajectory of our lives is tied to what our hearts love. So in verse 17, John comes out and he just tells us this world is passing away along with every desire. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, one of the saddest accounts, the most tragic stories in the Bible of a life spent loving the wrong things is the story of Demas, the disciple who loved the world. As a close friend and a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, Demas participated in spreading the gospel and strengthening the fledgling church throughout the Roman Empire. Demas was amazing. He left home to hit the long, dusty road with the itinerant evangelist and Apostle Paul, and he stood by Paul at every step of his journey, even at great personal risk when Paul was imprisoned for the first time. We read of Demas sending greetings to the churches of Colossae and to the Christian Philemon. He would appear by all accounts and all measurements to be a model Christian and a ministry leader. A guy we would all admire, respect, and want to emulate. Yet, a postscript in Paul's second letter to Timothy became his epitaph that we remember him by. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes, With what I imagine is great sorrow in his heart, in tears he pens these words, and he says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. It's impossible to read these words from Paul without feeling a great sense of sadness. What a tragedy. A life wasted, a testimony for Christ shipwrecked. All because Demas ended up loving the world more than he loved the gospel. What happened? How did Demas go from being a passionate follower of Christ and close companion to the Apostle Paul, risking his very life for the sake of the gospel, to a deserter? 
how did things go so horribly wrong? You know what the truth is? Before Demas ever thought of deserting Paul or ditching the gospel, he drifted. It wasn't immediate. It wasn't obvious to anyone around him. He didn't go from disciple to deserter in love with the world in a day. It was a gradual weakening, a gradual allurement as the song of the world enticed him away from Christian community. And if we're honest with our own hearts, there's a little bit of Demas in all of us. Amen? Amen. There's a little bit. Of, of demons. Although love for Christ is in my own life a, a desire in my own heart that each day I pray it's dug down deep. Sometimes the pressing desires this world, the things that entice me, I drift. And that's why we have this warning Folks, can you imagine what if Demas could have heeded John's warning? What if he could have been warned into repenting? And somebody could have told Demas, Demas, don't love the world. The fleeting pleasures of sin may be enjoyable right now, but this, this world and its desires, it's passing away. And only the Father's love will abide forever and fully satisfy what your heart is looking for. Oh, if Demas could have heard those words, then perhaps we would know Demas by a different legacy and epithet than the disciple who loved the present world more than the gospel. You see, folks, in the end, this warning where it leads us is actually to the love that we're all looking for. Now, every warning in Scripture is not to restrict our freedom or oppress us. It's to set us free and guide us away from the siren songs of this world towards the love that we all long for. That's where this warning leads us is to love. We see that in verses 12 to 14 that we read this morning. Let's read it again. The warning that John gives us is meant to lead us back into this beautiful word of promise, this beautiful love that John describes. Just soak in these words this morning. As John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who 
is from the beginning, and I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Three things very quickly that John shows us that we're all looking for, but that the world cannot deliver. Three things. Forgiveness, freedom, and family. You get it all in verses 12 to 14. The warning leads us back, and John reminds us, I write to you little children, which, by the way, is a gender-inclusive term. It actually appeals to both men and women. He says, little children, all of you. It's one of his favorite and endearing terms for the church. He says, River West, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. You're forgiven. John tells us that if we confess our sins, each and every sin, every awful thing, every worldly attachment that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what our hearts want. And we get it in Christ. But in addition to forgiveness, we get freedom, as John reminds us, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Twice in the short passage, John reminds us there's a love that has overcome the evil one. You're free. Whoever the son loves and sets free is free indeed. And you're not overcome by this world because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And if you bear the name of Jesus and have confessed Jesus as your Lord and love, you are no longer overcome and you're not property of the evil one. You belong to Jesus and he's not ashamed of you. Amen? Amen. Amen. And the last thing, and then the worship band's gonna come up here is we get family. This whole imagery, little children, young men, fathers, the picture's of family. Gathered together, it's a picture of the church. Now, many of you, you may have come from broken family. God places the lonely, his word says, in a family and he calls it the church. You're not alone. You're not struggling alone. Whatever you carried in here, look around. You have fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers. And we're all on this journey together, amen? We're all learning to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others is we want to be loved. We're all learning to be loved by a God who forgives us. We're all learning. 
We're opening the scriptures, so don't you dare walk out of here and believe you're the only one that's struggling with that thing. You're the only one that's having a difficult time right now. No. Look around. You have family. You have family. We're going to have the worship band come up here, and we're going to sing a song this morning called How Deep the Father's Love. My favorite hymns. As we respond this morning to what we've heard John proclaim to us, I pray that you'd open your heart to the love of the Father. Perhaps you'd use this time to confess to him some, some things that you have just loved too much, you desired too much. During this first song, we're, we're going to have the communion elements at, at the table. And as always, as a community, we're going to come to the table and we're going to receive these elements. So what I'd like you to do is, as, as Colin and the band leads us, go ahead and grab the bread and the cup. Return to your seat. And after the first song here, I'm going to come back up and I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Let me pray for us right now. Father, I am grateful this morning that as John, we're right later in, in this little letter, that we have no reason to be ashamed when our hearts condemn us because you are greater than our hearts. Father, we are so grateful that you are a gracious God who loves us out of this world. Father, I'm so grateful for the way that you have set your love on each and every heart here. And I pray this morning, Father, that, that your love would set us free from so many things of this world that will always let us down. Father, you're faithful, you're gracious, you're compassionate. If any in here, Father, has not named you as Savior, how I pray, Father, that today would be a day where you would draw that one to faith. In fact, if that's you, if that's your heart here this morning, you can pray this simple prayer. Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to the cross to die for my sins. I believe that you love and choose me. So by faith, I choose you. I put my hope in you. Father, lead us now into deeper love so that we can be a faithful people that represent you well, Lord, in this fallen world. In Christ's name we pray. All God's people said.